Okay, I think that's all uh, by way of announcements. Uh, we'll now hear today's scripture reading, and then after that, I'll be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 11, chapter 7, verses 2, 51 to 60, and chapter 8, verses 1. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The word of the Lord. Uh, so storytelling and stories are one, it's one of the most uh, common things amongst mankind. Uh, while the nature and the method of storytelling uh, has certainly changed over millennia, storytelling has always been central to how we as humans understand the world. Uh, stories, they shape us, they move us. Stories help us see the world through different lenses and worldviews and perspectives. Uh, stories make, uh, make, help us make sense of the life uh, and the world in which we live. Uh, stories take what might seem like cold, hard facts or lofty existential ideas uh, and turn them into some kind of meaningful, life-changing truth. This is the power of stories. Now, uh, there are many perspectives on this, but the Bible is actually, at its core, a story. The Bible is a story of God's redemption of his people. Uh, it, the Bible is a story of Jesus and what he accomplishes for the people of God. And along the way, as the story is told, the Bible moves us, and it shapes us, and it changes us. But here's what's interesting about this story in particular. In order for us to be impacted by the story of the Bible, we need to see ourselves in the story. We need to understand our proper place in the biblical narrative. Because the story of the Bible is not just a story of, of others or things that others have done, but rather it's a story about you 
and about me as well. And when we see the Bible as part of our story, then we can either do one of two things. We can either embrace the story as being true, or we can get offended by it and reject it. And I posture it that way because when we understand the true story of the Bible, you're going to have one of those two reactions if you rightly understand it. You're either going to embrace it for it's true, or you're going to reject it and you're going to be offended by it. And Acts 6 through 8 gives us a perfect example of that reality. We see a story being told in these chapters, a story, again, that is not just about someone else, but it's actually our story. And it's a story that we are not only called to hear, but if you're a Christian, you're also told and called to tell that story. And so I want to take a look at the story that's being told here in these chapters, and I want to see, again, how it's not just a story of old, but it's a story for now, and it's a story that we're called to tell. And I want to look at it through three different lenses, right? There's essentially three stories going on in this one story. You have Stephen's story, you have Israel's story, and you have Jesus' story, right? I want to take a look at those three and see how they all apply to us. Um, If you've been with us, we've been in the middle of a series called Extraordinary Through the Ordinary. It's been a, a look at the book of Acts to see how we go about living lives that might at so- sometimes feel ordinary, but God chooses to use our lives in extraordinary ways. And today I want to see how we can be extraordinary storytellers as a result of those three stories that we'll look at. Uh, and before we begin, let me just highly encourage you to go back and read chapter 6 and 7. It's way too long for us to have read fully today. So I just broke it up and gave you pieces to give you a sense of what's happening. Uh, But I'd encourage you to read the whole thing if you get a chance. That said, let's start with Stephen's story. How is that also our story? All right, so 6 and 7, chapter 6 and 7, centers on the ministry of this man named Stephen. We actually don't know a whole lot about him, uh, but what we do know is really worth mentioning uh, because Stephen is actually one of the most important figures in all of Christian history. Stephen's influence on the spread of the church cannot be overstated. Let me explain to you why. Here's what we know about Stephen. So in chapter 6, we're told that there was this dispute uh, that arose about how the church was to care for widows at the time. Now, if you remember, the church was, uh, had taken upon itself the responsibility to care for those who were most vulnerable uh, within the church, Christian community, and the widows were some of the most vulnerable people that there were. And so as a result of this dispute about how to take care of them, uh, so that they could focus on other ministries, the apostles, they appointed seven people to oversee the daily distribution of uh, the resources to those who were in need. Now, these were the first deacons, and Stephen was one of those first deacons. And so what we have here is Stephen, a man who was caring for the poor and the needy. Uh, And then we're told that while he was in this ministry role, he was full of grace and power. And in that grace and power, he proclaimed the message of Jesus. Now that message made some religious leaders really angry. Because the message was actually an extremely confrontational message. And as a result of the message that he proclaimed, he's now brought before the religious leaders. uh, And... As you heard in the, as you saw in the reading, that was actually a very dangerous situation because in the end, Stephen would be killed for the message that he was proclaiming. 
Stephen here would be the very first martyr of the Christian church. Stephen would be the first of many who would come who were so deeply moved uh, by the message of Jesus that they were willing to die in order to continue sharing that message. And then, as a result of the murder, so he proclaims, he stoned to death, and then it says in chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, that on that day a great persecution broke out uh, against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, what's the significance of that? Now, if you remember, all the way back in Acts 1, where we started, Jesus told his disciples that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit so that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, up until this point in uh, Acts chapter, I guess, 8 now, up until this point, that really hadn't happened yet. For the most part, the message of Jesus had only stayed within Jerusalem uh, amongst the Jewish people. However, as a result of Stephen's murder and the persecution that would follow, the message of Christ went all over into the region and beyond. Now why? Well, it's because Christians, they were fleeing for their lives, but as they fled, they took the message of Jesus with them. God used this persecution to push the church out so that the message of Jesus might go with them. And that means that if you're a Christian today, your story is tied to what happens here in Acts 6 through 8. That your faith in Jesus is rooted all the way back to this persecution, for it's this persecution that sent the message out. And it's at least worth noting that this is how the story of Jesus has always progressed over the course of church history. It's, the, it's how people have always been transformed. It's always been the case that the message of Jesus is told by his followers to others. And so again, if you're a Christian, you are a Christian because someone at some point shared Jesus with you and someone shared Jesus with them and someone else with them and someone else with them. And if you could trace it all the way back, you'd have a direct line back to Stephen, back to this persecution. And a key takeaway, I think, needs to be that we ourselves must see our part of the story. We must see ourselves in the line of storytellers that have been telling stories all the way since this passage. We're part of that continuing line even now. We ought to be compelled to tell the story of Jesus the way that the church has always told the story. It's the same story of Stephen that we're called to share now. And I wonder, if you're a Christian, do you see your calling as such? Do you see that you are called to herald the same message that Stephen heralded in order that others might come to faith through your faithful storytelling? Right? In this sense, Stephen's story is our story. Uh, but we're going to actually take a look at the story that he tells in a minute, his actual message. But I, I want to maybe make one more point to emphasize how important it is that we see ourselves as a storyteller, one continuing on the story of Stephen. Because again, we can't underestimate the power and the significance of his willingness to tell the story. Because here's what, here's what I want us to see. As you're reading that whole long, uh, if you're re reading through those chapters, you read that whole long message, that sermon that um, Stephen gives, we have to ask the question, where exactly 
was this happening, and who recorded the actual sermon itself? We're told that he's before the religious leaders, so who exactly is recording what's being told and what he's actually saying in this very long sermon? It's the longest sermon in all of Acts. Well, there's a couple things that we know. The first thing that we know is that Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts, but he did so based on the testimony of others who were present with these different events that happened. And so this sermon, which is very long and detailed, had to have come from someone who was actually there. Now we know that Luke wasn't there, and we also know that it's extremely unlikely that the religious leaders who were so angry at him remembered all the details of his speech, wrote it all down, and then shared it with Luke so that he could then pass it on. It's very unlikely that happened. So who else was there? Who else heard the story? Well, if you have it in front of you, look at verses 57 and 58. It says this. It says that at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now do you know who that is? Saul, this man here, his name would eventually be changed to Paul. Of course, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a close associate and friend of Luke. The Apostle Paul was there listening to Stephen's sermon. And many have pointed out that Stephen's message mirrors the theology that Paul lays out throughout the rest of the New Testament. This sermon deeply shaped Paul, who at this point was still a murderous opponent of Christianity. And we're going to see his conversion in the coming weeks. But it's not an exaggeration to say that we likely have the New Testament because of this speech here in chapter 6 and 7. And I don't want to rush past that too quickly because, again, if you're a Christian, it's because someone else shared Christ with you. And as a result, you have a calling to now share it with others, no matter the resistance that you might get when you tell that story. The resistance of Stephen ended up costing him his life because he lived in this world that uh, this, this, he was in this environment that really resisted everything that he had to proclaim about who Jesus was. And yet, he shared that story and the world was radically changed. And the world was radically changed only after he would be murdered. The message of Stephen that was proclaimed didn't bear fruit until much later after his death. The message of Christ was planted, but the fruits of what was planted didn't come until much further down the line. We see that fruit coming, of course, through Paul. But I'm saying this to say that you and I, we're called to make this message known, and we never know who's listening. No matter how much resistance we might end up experiencing, we never know who in the end is listening. And so again, in this way, Stephen's story is very much our story. Okay, with all that, though, let's pin that for a second. Now we need to shift to his actual message. So we've said much about the message that he proclaimed. What was that message that got him killed? Well, that's where we can look at Israel's story. That's very much part of this. Stephen, throughout chapter 7, in essence, tells the story of Israel in his sermon. Now, frankly, this is an incredibly fascinating sermon that I wish we could actually walk through. I, we just do not have the time to do it. Um, 
And so again, I would encourage you to go back and read it. But there are several points that I want to draw out from his story that he tells. Uh, the religious leaders, as we read, were furious because, as we see in verse 11, he supposedly spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. This is what brings him before the religious leaders. Now, again, there's so much that could be said that's within the sermon, but in essence, here's what we have. Okay? So in the sermon, he starts off by noting and calling on the promises uh, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then he goes on to talk about the law that God established through Moses. And then he speaks of the temple of God, which was established through Solomon. And then he talks about the prophets that God sent to proclaim truth. And then he summarizes his whole point in verse 51, which says this. He says, you are a stiff-necked people. Now what does that mean? Well, stiff-necked originates from this agricultural world of the day uh, in which horses and cattle and oxen, they would refuse to yield or submit to the yoke that the farmer would put around their necks. This was an expression uh, that was synonymous with disobedience or with rebellion. So he calls them this rebellious people. And then he goes on to say that your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. Now, if you know Jewish custom, to be circumcised is to be part of God's covenant people. And Stephen here is pulling language from places like uh, Jeremiah 4, which speak of God's people not only just taking the sign of physical, uh, the physical uh, circumcision as being part of the covenant, but that they would also open up their hearts uh, to him. Right? So to have an uncircumcised heart is ultimately to not give oneself to the Lord. And then he continues on. He says, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Verse 53, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. He is basically saying, your ancestors constantly rejected the promises of God that he made to Abraham, disobeyed the law of God that was given to Moses, constantly resist the Holy Spirit, constantly reject God's prophets. Time and time again, they persecuted and even killed the prophets. And then the second part of 51, he just says, you're just like them. Their story, Israel, is your story, Israel. For you have killed the righteous one of God, the very one sent to be your Messiah, you murdered him. He is laying plain before them that they are a rebellious people, condemned before God because of their rebellion against him. I mean, Stephen is arguing that they are stubborn and disobedient, and they refuse to give God their entire lives and reject anyone who comes along to call them out of that rebellion. It's a heavy, heavy message of condemnation against them. And lest we assume, or lest we miss, rather, what Stephen is doing, this is not just a message for the religious leaders of Israel. Right? That, that is not just Israel's story, but that's also our story as well. The story of condemnation is our story of condemnation because we do the same. Now, if you know me, uh, you know that I'm, I'm certainly not much of a fire and brimstone kind of preacher. Uh, every week, uh, my goal is that we are able to look upon Jesus, to see what he has done for us, and as a result, fall deeper in love with him because Jesus is good news. But we cannot miss the fact 
that the good news of Jesus is only good news when we have first understood the bad news. Stephen, in this sermon, is making the bad news very plain to these religious leaders and to you and I today, that we all stand condemned before God as a result of our stubborn rebellion, that we all stand alienated from him because of our uncircumcised hearts that do not want to recognize him as God, that we stand guilty of rejecting the truths of his word and trusting that his commands are good and right and true. And so often we believe that our desires and our perspectives are superior to his, and as a result, we become that stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. I mean, I said this earlier, but we need to consider, again, that the Bible is a story. And it's a story that we're either going to be embra- we're either going to find true and embrace it, or we're going to be offended by it and reject it. Because the story of the Bible is a confronting, an offensive message. And the religious leaders found it so offensive that they killed Stephen. And over the course of church history, people have found it so offensive that they have killed the messengers. And even today, we may find it so offensive. And while many of us here, we have the privilege of not often having to worry about our lives being taken for it, something that many Christians around the world do not have the luxury of experiencing. But at minimum, there will be many who reject it, view it as regressive, old-fashioned, and narrow. Maybe even some of us now, as we hear this story of Jesus, find it to be that old-fashioned, regressive, narrow way of understanding the world. And of course, if it's not true, then all of this is its ridiculous. The whole story, the whole Bible is just absolutely ridiculous if what I've just presented about us being condemned before God isn't true. But if it is true, if it is true that we stand before him condemned, then not only should we consider the bad news, we need to fully understand and grasp the extent of the good news as well. And so let's consider that finally by looking at not just Stephen's story, not just Israel's story, but also Jesus' story. Now so far, again, we've seen that Stephen's story is our story in that we, if we are Christians, we are called to share the message of Jesus. Uh, We've said that Israel's story is also our story because we too are rebellious people that often reject God. But all of that is only true if verses 55 and 56 of our passage are true. If verse 55 and 56 are not true, everything we've said so far, again, is nonsense. So what is it that 55 and 56 say? Let me reread it for you. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now that one verse is packed with tons of assumptions that provide us the power of the gospel and the necessary foundation for everything that we've said thus far. Let me quickly show you a few things. First, consider where is Jesus in that story? Well, it says that he's at the right hand of God the Father. Why does that matter? It matters because as we've said already, right, all the way back in the first week of our series, we said that Jesus ascended. And when he ascended, he stepped into this role of power and kingship. That Jesus being at the right hand of God the Father is a way of making clear that Jesus is a judge over all who stand condemned. 
So that's the first thing. But the second thing, look at verse 56. He's called the Son of Man. Now, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always being referred to as the Son of Man. But after he ascends, we don't see him being called that anymore throughout the New Testament, except here. And the reason why that's important is because though he is God, he and also called the Son of God, he's also human, and therefore called the Son of Man, which is this reference back to Daniel 7, which speaks of this exalted figure that's called the Son of Man. Now, why am I emphasizing that? It's because what Stephen sees here is Jesus, the Son of Man, the resurrected one, the one who is now exalted in heaven as judge over all. And these verses are the only reason that the Bible is good news. Because if Jesus is not the resurrected, exalted one, then again, all of this is nonsense. Stephen's story, Israel's story, it's all nonsense. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, ascend to exaltation, then everything that we've said thus far is true. And if it is true, then we are all condemned before God as a result of our rebellion. But if that is true, then everything else Jesus said is also true. It is also true that Jesus, as John 1 tells us, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's also true, as Romans 8 tells us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is true, then we are also called to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is all the good news of the gospel. But then there's one final, one final thing. Another in interesting aspect of the vision that you see here. Look again at these verses. Uh, what is Jesus doing in these verses? It says that he is standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you know biblical language, it might seem common uh, to hear that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. We see that over and over again in other places. But here it says that he's standing. Why is that? Well, there's actually been a lot of debate about what that means. Uh, some say that it's nothing, it's just semantics. Others don't think that's true, and I don't think that that's true. Because here's what I think is happening. There's a lot of different ways that we can think about heaven, but one of the ways that the Bible often speaks of heaven is twofold. That it's, it's this throne room, but it's also a courtroom. Now, we in our democracy, we get really used to the separation of powers, right, between, you know, the executive branch and the judicial branch. But in a kingdom, that's usually not the case. In a kingdom, the king is both the king and the judge. Now, in a courtroom, the judge sits. But in a courtroom, who exactly is it that's standing? In a courtroom, it's the advocate who stands in defense of those whom he represents. And 1 John 2 tells us that Jesus is our advocate, that he stands before the Father to advocate for our acceptance and approval as a result of what he has accomplished for us. That we are righteous and accepted because Jesus took our unrighteousness upon himself. And his advocacy says that it would be unjust for the Father to condemn those who are in him because Jesus has already taken upon himself the punishment of sin. And so when Jesus says it is finished, he is saying that there is no more condemnation for those that are in me. And so here in this passage, we have Jesus standing 
to stand before the Father saying, Father, Stephen is about to step into glory here. And I am advocating for him to say that it is now, it is finished. That he might be welcomed and accepted. I mean, this is the vision that Stephen is having. And so I'm, I'm bringing all this up because do you know why that's important? Again, Stephen's story is our story. Israel's story is our story. Jesus' story, what's happening here, it's our story as well. I mean, Jesus is our advocate. He still advocates for us that we might not stand condemned before God, but accepted. And he calls us now to make that good news known the same way that Stephen did. That all who trust in Jesus might experience him as their advocate. Not just as their judge, but as their advocate. This is the promise of the good news of Jesus. And so I don't know about you, but to me, that's an extraordinary story. And it's amazing that God calls us to tell that story. And I trust that he'll help us and empower us to be extraordinary storytellers as we step out to make that story known to those who need to hear. You know, in the words of that old hymn, I love to tell a story, it will be my theme and glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I pray that that would be compelling to us, that we might do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, for what you have accomplished in your son. We thank you that we once stood condemned before you because of our rebellion. We recognize that Israel's story is very much our story, for we often reject you as our, our God and Lord. But we thank you that what Jesus has accomplished has changed all of that. That there truly is uh, no longer any condemnation for those that are in him. And we thank you that he is our advocate who is constantly uh, in the throne room, in the courtroom, advocating for us. And we catch a, a glimpse of the beauty of that reality, the resurrected Jesus, our advocate. And may we be so captivated by that story that we're compelled to go and share that story with others. And Lord, may you give us the privilege of being able to see those who have not trusted in you come to faith and put their trust in you. Would you do it, Lord? Would you give us all that we need to do that well? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.